0: to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They gave him wine to drink, mixed with, mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified him, with him were casting the same insult at him. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them he said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And I'll pray. God, we're again just thankful for all that You've given us of Yourself and what You've recorded in Your Word of Yourself and Your ways. And I again ask God that that You would just be working here by Your Spirit and through Your Word to draw our hearts to Yourself and that we would yield to You and love You and obey You, God, as You desire. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good to see you all again on this um, first day of the year. God has been so faithful again this past year. I know we all had, as we all do, because we live in a fallen world, we all had many trials and things that we trusted God for, and we've seen God just again be so faithful. At the end of every year, we can say God is good, God is faithful, and no matter the fears that we may have for the coming year, knowing that God will be good and God will be faithful because He never changes. There is one announcement that I thought of, um, and we don't have the bulletins, but um Sanctity of Life Sunday, we, all, we traditionally now have a um, um, baby dedication, Sanctity of Life Sunday. So that will be coming up, I believe, Catch, you can confirm, the 22nd of January? She doesn't? know. Okay. Last year it was on the 23rd, so I would assume it would be on the 22nd this coming. So that will be in, in three Sundays. So you moms and dads with little babies that were born this year, keep that in mind. So we've been working through Matthew since January of last year, and we're coming to the end. And and this is obviously the passage that deals with the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, It splits history, has been said by more than one person. It is the apex of history. It's the the culmination of everything that God has been doing in history up until that time. And we mark our, our calendars. Everything is really based upon this event Um, the the crucifixion of Christ and then three days later his resurrection and then um, on Pentecost the indwelling of of the Spirit of God to those who believe. There are some details here that I want to look at um, and then make some applications. And so first of all um, it says when they had come to the place called Golgotha which means the place of a skull. We don't know exactly where that location is outside of Jerusalem, um, and um, there is a there is a um, a church that has been built that that is designated as the place where Christ was um, was crucified. That may be the actual place. There's another place outside the city that the limestone cliff looks like a skull. Um, It um, doesn't have the same tradition behind it, but that may in fact been. But we know it was outside the city. We know it was on a major thoroughfare where lots of people crossed. It's a very public place, and it was meant to be viewed and meant to put fear and terror into the hearts of anybody that would transgress Rome, because this is what could happen to them. And so Jesus, as as you remember, before He was even crucified, had already suffered tremendously And he's lost um, an, an immense amount of blood. He was so weak he couldn't carry his own cross. And then it says in verse 34, "...they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall." And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. The gall was meant to lessen the pain. And in fact, it would have even perhaps lengthened the time that he would be on the cross. But it was meant to dull his senses and to dull the pain. And Jesus says not going to have anything to do with that. He wanted to experience the full suffering and not in any way diminish it. When a person is is approaching death, we know that typically they, they go through a time of great pain. And we give them medication, morphine, other things to deaden the pain. And we know it also clouds their minds. They don't, they're not thinking as clearly. And they'll say things that they wouldn't have said because their minds have been clouded. And Jesus has wanted His mind to be as clear and sharp as possible during this time and to experience without any deadening of, of, of His senses the full scope of the suffering that God has appointed for Him. And so He's unwilling to take um, this drug that would have deadened His senses. And when they had crucified Him, they divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots. This amazing thing about that simple sentence is, or that simple statement, is that the first part of it, when they crucified Him, is a dependent clause. It's not even the main sentence. The main sentence is, they, they divided up His garments. Now, Matthew Contrary to Mark and Luke and John does this Mark, Luke, and John, they make the crucifixion the main sentence. Matthew goes, "No, and we don 't know why, but it 's as though matthew goes i 'm not going to go into all the details here and and yes, Jesus has been crucifying and is crucified, and yes, this is very significant, but just even the way he states it in this sentence, it is the dependent clause, it is not the main Part of the sentence. We know from scripture that it was going to be prophesied that they were going to divide up his garments, and that's why it's in capital letters in your text. And it says, In sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. How ironic. (laughs) He's a crucified man, and and they're thinking, We need to watch him to see what he might do. But he had completely submitted himself to death. They put above his head the charge against him. So the crime against him, they would always nail above the the victim the crime committed. And the crime that Jesus committed was that he was the king of the Jews. They didn't like it, the Pharisees, that's what what, um, Pilate had nailed above his head but he refused to change it because he knew that was in fact why he was being crucified. It's because they were jealous of him and they did not want him as their king. And so Pilate put down the truth of the matter that he was crucified because he was the king of the Jews. Two robbers we know were crucified with him. One on the right, one on the left. They were hurling their abuse at him. They were wagging their heads. And they said, you destroyed the temple he never said that. He never said He would destroy the temple. They've taken His words and twisted them and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So just blasphemy and total mocking and disrespect. In the same way the chief priests along with the scribes and elders were mocking Him saying He saved others, cannot save Himself He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And here they even quote scripture, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. Because they knew God took pleasure in his son. If they'd been paying attention, they would have heard the father say at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And they said, if he's truly the son of God and God truly takes pleasure in him, then let God deliver him. Unbelievable. No fear of God in these men. And the robbers also had been crucified with him, were casting the same insult at him. Now this is where it gets interesting. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. You remember Jesus was nailed to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. And so the sixth hour would have been noon. And at noon, everything goes dark. We're not told whether it was the entire world. It says the earth went dark in another one of the Gospels. And so whether that means the local area or the entire world, we can't know for sure. I think it's the entire world and not just the local area. That God turned the lights out. And the, the earth has gone dark for three hours. And during that time of darkness, right at the end of it, after three hours of darkness, they hear Jesus cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and, and then it's translated for us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is very, very important because it, it tells us that, see, that when we think about the death of Jesus, we have to think of death in two ways, physical death and spiritual death. Because our death, sin, brings about for each of us both spiritual and physical death. We are born spiritually dead. And we will die physically. But we come into this life spiritually dead because of Adam and what he did. We are not born united to God. We are born separated from God. And death is separation. And so Jesus, to experience death and pay for death for you and I, He had to die physically and spiritually. So the question is, when did He die spiritually? And it's not when He died physically. Because before He died physically, His last words are going to be, That Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. So that can't be that He is spiritually dead after the cross, but He was spiritually dead while on the cross. And that's why from the cross He can say two things, It is finished, and into thy hands I commend my spirit. There was nothing more for Him to do. So this three hour of darkness is when Jesus died spiritually. He is physically still alive. But he has now become separated from the father. So he has died spiritually. Hugely significant. Now there's a a lot to comment on with this. I won't take much time here. But one of the things, one observation here is that while spiritually dead, while spiritually separated from his father, he is aware of it and talking to the father. Correct? Correct. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he is spiritually dead, separated from the Father, but he is spiritually aware of his spiritual condition. And in that condition, he is crying out to God, Why have you forsaken me? Now this is important because when it comes to the doctrine of of death, there are those, very popular today, who would say that a spiritually dead person cannot talk to God. He is not even aware of his spiritual condition and he cannot cry out to God while spiritually dead. Then he has to be regenerated first and then he can cry out to God. Well, Jesus is crying out to God while spiritually dead. And I've made the point in other sermons the same thing was true with Adam. After Adam sinned, He was very much conscious of his separation from God, what he had done. He was shameful of what he had done. He was hiding from God. And when God called him him out, he talks to God. And so those two incidences of Adam and Jesus ought to inform our theology when it comes to spiritual death. What is a spiritually dead person capable of? One school of thought says nothing. But you can't get that from your Bible. What the Bible's saying is a spiritually dead person can be aware of his condition and can cry out to God in that condition. You look at Romans chapter 1, and it says even though they, even though they knew God, talking about the spiritually dead, they did not honor God or give thanks. So a spiritually dead person can know God thank God, and honor God. So Jesus here is separated from the Father. And during this three hours of spiritual death is when He is paying for sin. And again, there's no way we can comprehend all this, but it doesn't mean it isn't true because it's beyond our comprehension. We can't comprehend eternity. It's beyond our comprehension. Because it's a dimension that we have no experience with. But it's a real dimension nonetheless. Even if we can't comprehend it, doesn't mean there is not any, a dimension of eternity. And in that three hours, which is time, it's a separate dimension than eternity, in that three hours of time, Jesus has paid for an eternity's worth of sin. Sin deserves eternal punishment. Not temporal punishment, but eternal punishment. But in time, in three hours' time, Jesus has satisfied the eternal demands of God. I can't understand that, but it's what the scripture is is revealing here for us. So much satisfied that when he does cry out with a loud voice, he says, It is finished. Everything that sin would 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 that, that God demands because of sin, everything has been paid for. It is finished. So this is a tremendous thing that's going on here. And this darkness is symbolic of Christ's separation from the Father. It means when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that he is no longer in union with the Father. And when he cries out with a loud voice, Matthew doesn't tell us what he cried out. But when we compare the other two Gospels, that's where we get the two statements, the last two statements that he makes from the cross. The first is, it is finished. And then the last is, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, when he cried out, Eli, Eli, It's understandable that the crowd standing around thought he was saying, Elijah, Elijah. Understandable because he would have been very difficult to understand at this time. I know, I mean, we all know, if you you haven't had anything to drink before you go to bed at night, and you wake up in the morning, especially if you live in a drier climate than even we are, man, the mouth is so, it just feels like you have cotton in your mouth because the mouth is so dried out. But when you've lost the amount of blood that Jesus has lost, he is so dehydrated that it would have not been possible for him to speak distinctly. He needed to have his mouth moistened. And that's why on this occasion he accepts the wine. This wine on the second occasion is not mingled with gall. It's not good wine. It's soured wine. But it's enough moisture that now he can speak distinctly what the crowd needs to hear. They're thinking he's crying out for Elijah, which he was not. So what are they going to think when he says, It is finished? What are they going to think when he says, Into thy hands I commend my spirit? And so it's a very important here that they hear clearly what's going on. And so it seems for that reason he accepted the wine so that his, his mouth could be moist enough that he could be clearly understood. Jesus died spiritually while He was on the cross. That means He was raised spiritually while He was on the cross. He was reunited with the Father, and that's why it says, Into Thy hands I commit my spirit. There was nothing more for Jesus to do. It is finished means it is finished. All sin was paid for. All we need to do now is say, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to do penance for my sin. One of the biggest indications of pride in a person's life is when he he refuses to accept the forgiveness that God offers to him. When I think I have to add to what Jesus has done by being penitent for my sin, that adds nothing to what Jesus has done. Being sorry for my sin, repenting of my sin, even confessing my sin adds nothing to what Jesus has done. It is finished. Now it is a free gift that simply needs to be received. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for paying for my sin. And yes, we confess, we're in agreement with God with what He has done. But it's Jesus, what He did, that pays for my sin. It's not what I do that pays for my sin. I cannot add to what Jesus has done. I can only recognize what He has done and receive the free gift. Nothing that I would do can contribute anything to what Jesus has done. It is finished. Now that's grace. Amen? Grace. That should make anybody's New Year look great. Because... God has done it all and we are forgiven sinners reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. But here, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I need to hear myself say these things over and over again. Though we are saved by the grace of God, God's intention was never for us to only experience his grace. The grace of God has been extended to us that we might know the life of God. Grace is not the goal. Life is the goal. And as Romans chapter 6 says, if you want to just merely experience the grace of God, then just sin. Because where sin abounds, grace increases, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. But he goes on there in Romans 6 and Paul says, we have not been saved, actually at the end of chapter 5, "We we have not been saved to simply know the grace of God, but grace leads us to eternal life. So we say, Jesus, thank you for paying for it all. Thank you. And thank you for the grace that has been bestowed upon me. But this grace isn't so that I could just go on my merry way. And have a happy new year. But this grace is that I might enter into the very life of Jesus. And that his life would become the controlling, dominant influence of my life. That I could truly say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in him who gave himself for me, who delivered himself up for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus died spiritually on the cross and he rose spiritually while still physically alive. And then he died physically. But the physical death, as important as that is, that he died not just spiritually, because if he'd only died spiritually, huge as that is, and that's the bigger of the two, spiritual death, physical death, but if he had died spiritually and not physically, then I could have no hope for what happens when death comes. I could have no hope in a physical resurrection if Christ had not died physically as well as spiritually. So he he covered the whole gamut of death, everything that death does. Jesus experienced, took, paid for, and was victorious over. He was victorious over spiritual death. He was victorious over physical death. So much so that Paul can say now, physical death has lost its sting. Oh, death, where is your sting? And he says it's gone. It's like a shadow. Now it's just, it's, just it's, it's not even a big thing for the Christian anymore and we can say we look forward to being with Jesus and we prefer to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord because of what Jesus accomplished here on the cross. We know that the cross in the physical and spiritual death of Jesus through His shed blood is what is the basis for our justification, our right standing before God, our salvation. Paul will say in Romans 5, He was delivered up because of our transgressions and He was raised up because of our justification. So the resurrection, as significant as it is, it's significant for other reasons. We are not justified, saved, because of the resurrection of Jesus. We are justified, saved, because of the death of Jesus. It is His shed blood which is the basis for our justification. And our justification is the basis for His resurrection. He was was raised because of our justification. And the justification is because of His death. So the the chronology of it is, Jesus died, we are justified, Jesus was raised. He would not have been raised if his death had not paid for our sins. He would still be in the grave. So his resurrection did nothing to pay for our sin. It was his death that paid for our sin. And we cannot add to what Jesus did. It's Amazing. The immediate events upon his death, the first thing and the most significant, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil was as thick as two hand breaths thick. And so that's pretty thick. Some, ha- some hands are a lot thicker than mine. And, I, and I, that's, a, that's, that's thick. And so that veil... From top to bottom, it was ripped in half. The veil, if you recall, was what separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Only once a year would the high priest go behind the veil, and he would bring blood with him, and he would make atonement for the sins of the people from the past year. It did nothing for the future. It was only covering the sins that had already been committed. He went with bells around the hem of his garment and a rope tied to his ankle. We believe it was because if he was struck dead for any reason while he was back there that they could haul him out without going in after him. Because to step behind the curtain without being covered by the blood that God had prescribed meant instant death. And so it was an awesome thing for this guy to once a year step behind there and be in the presence of God. And the only thing separating him from death was the blood that he was sprinkling on the mercy seat. That's it. And so if the blood wasn't acceptable, he was a dead man. And the same thing is true for you and I. If the blood of Jesus is not acceptable to God, then we are dead. We have no hope of having life. And so the high priest doing that once a year every, was always a constant symbol that we are separated from God and should, and, are, and, are, and should live in fear of being struck down because of the holiness of God. And now the veil's been torn only because sin has been paid for. And when that veil's torn, people aren't dying. And it's because God has covered, taken our sin, canceled the certificate of debt against us. And the image here is that we have now access to God. Hebrews says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive grace to help in our time of need. This is what was accomplished, the immediate thing that was accomplished, not because of the resurrection of Christ, but because of the death of Christ, and God was satisfied with the blood that we have complete access to God. I appreciate Watchman Nee on this point. Where he, he says, the blood is for God. The high priest, nobody saw what was going on in the Holy of Holies. Just God did. The blood was for God. The blood of Christ dealt, deals with my problem that I, that, that I can't approach God. The blood satisfies God. The crucifixion deals with me. The crucifixion, Watchman Nee says, is, and this is where I'm going next with the application of this, is about me. But the blood is about God. The veil was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs were opened. And we don't know what to do with this. We take it as true, but nothing more is ever said about it. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Saints, not just dead people, any dead people, but dead saints, dead believers were specifically raised. We don't know for sure if they were raised right at that moment, it appears to be, or if they raised, it, it says verse 53, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. That makes it sound like it was three days later. But we know that they appeared, they went into Jerusalem, and they appeared to many, and then we don't know anything more about them. Did they die again? Were they ascended into heaven? Nothing said. 54th, the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, This, truly, this was the Son of God. They could see it. The centurion could see it. Even if the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin council couldn't. There were many women that were standing at a distance, probably because he would have been stripped naked. Remember, they divided up all his clothing. And so sometimes my understanding is that the Romans, after they stripped a person naked just for the the shame of it, just adding shame to shame, they would put another cloth around him. We don't know if they did that with Jesus or if they just left him naked. Probably left him naked because it says these women were standing at a distance. And it would seem is because they don't want to be too close to see him in all the details. And then he's buried. Verse 57, and when it was evening, there came a rich man. Evening of what? The same day of his crucifixion. A holy day. The day of Passover. The day that the the Jews and the Pharisees were celebrating Passover. The same day that they were unwilling to go into Pilate's palace because they didn't want to become unclean. Right? Same day. And so the religious leaders wouldn't even go to Pilate's palace because they didn't want to become unclean. But this guy Joseph, first time we've heard of him, Joseph of Arimathea, and very little information that Matthew gives, we look at the other gospel accounts and we know that he's one of the members of the Sanhedrin Council. Another one of the gospel writer says he's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin Council. And he goes, I don't care. This religious ceremony of not being defiled obviously is an empty ceremony for all of my colleagues. And there's something bigger here than not being defiled. And he says, what can this religious defilement mean if this one has taken away all my sin? And Joseph understood it. And he goes, it's a bigger deal to be right with God than to be concerned about these rites of religious defilement. We're told that not by Matthew, but again by one of the other writers, that he gathered up his courage and he went to Pilate. So it wouldn't have been an easy thing to do, to, uh, to just come out, because he was secretly, it says, a disciple. And so now the secret's gone, and he comes out and exposes himself to Pilate as a genuine disciple of Jesus, the man who had just been crucified, and says, sir, I'd like to have his body. So it came about when it was evening there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then again one of the other gospels says Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. Why would he be surprised? Because normally crucifixions lasted sometimes for days. A man could hang on a cross for days before he died. Well, why didn't it take days for Jesus? Don't be too quick to say, well, it's because he suffered so much. Because of the beating, the scourging, the being pounded in the face. The crucifixion did not kill Jesus. He died because he gave up his spirit. That's what the text says. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, Peter is going to say in Acts, you murdered him. But Jesus earlier had said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own initiative. His, he could not, I I don't know, again, these things are just beyond our comprehension. But he was fully God, fully man, and I don't think he could have died until he said, I give up my spirit. Into thy hands I give up my spirit. And that's why he died not because of the crucifixion, but because he yielded up his spirit. That's when any person dies physically. Technically, to be maybe better than technical, biblically, a person dies not when his heart stops beating, not when his brain ceases to have brain activity, but he dies when his spirit leaves the body, and goes to be with the Lord. And in Jesus' case, no one took his life. He gave it up of his own free will. So Joseph asked for the body. Pilate determines that he has died. And so he releases the body to Joseph. Joseph has defiled himself by going to Pilate, and he has defiled himself by taking the body. He doesn't care. He took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he laid it in his own new tomb just as Isaiah prophesied would take place. And then he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Matthew doesn't tell us that Nicodemus was helping him out in the process. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. The other Mary would have been the mother of Jesus. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, this deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first." And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you can. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone, meaning that no one would have had the authority to break the seal. Chapter 28 will tell us of his resurrection. I began this message by saying the crucifixion is the center point of all human history. Everything is divided on one side or the other of the cross. Not the birth of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. It is the central event of history. And it is a historical reality. Very few people dispute the crucifixion of Jesus. But it's not just a historical Reality. It is also meant to be a personal reality for each of us, personal reality. I quoted Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with him. That makes it a personal reality. And not just Galatians, Paul speaks of the same thing in Romans six where he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Christ's death is meant to be understood as our death. And when we place our faith in Jesus to save us from our sins, God says at that moment he views us as having been crucified with Christ. Clearly that wasn't a physical crucifixion. None of us died physically when we placed our faith in Christ. But it does mean that the core of what I am was nailed to the cross with Jesus when I placed my faith in him. This becomes not just a historical reality, but it is a personal reality. I died with Jesus. I was buried with Jesus. I rose with Jesus. This is what defines not just history now, but defines you and me. We ought to be able to say that you cannot understand me apart from the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus is not just the central issue of history. It is the central issue for me. I died. I was buried. I was raised with him. When Christ died, I died. God considers me dead with Christ. And God considers me alive with Christ. What I was before I became a Christian will never be true of me again. And we listed those things before from Romans 5. I was helpless, I was ungodly, I was a sinner, and I was at enmity with God. None of that is true any longer, positionally. I am no longer helpless. I am no longer an enemy of God. I am no longer ungodly. Technically, I am not even any longer a sinner. I sin, yes, but that is no longer my identity. That person who was separated from God, who was in enmity with God, has died with Christ. And now I have been raised as a new creature. I was dead with Christ, I was buried with Christ, and I have been raised with Christ as a new creature. What I was no longer is. I am a new person in Jesus, this is my personal reality. But not only is the historical reality of the cross meant to be a personal reality for each of us, it is also meant to be a governing reality, a governing reality. So that's my three-point outline for this sermon. You know, don't do that very often, but it's the historical reality of the cross. Personal reality, have I placed my faith in Him? If I have, then the cross is the personal reality of my life. But it's meant to be also the daily governing reality of my life. And Scripture is very clear on this. When we, the crucified life is a humble life. And if if the cross of Christ is governing my life, it will manifest itself before anything else in humility. I like that quote by Andrew Murray. that says, just as pride is the root of all sin, humility is the root of all virtue. Everything begins, the entire work of God begins with humility. This is why the very first of the Beatitudes back in Matthew 5 was blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of God. This is such a central point that when the cross is governing my life, then humility will be the dominant characteristic of my life. Such a a basic, fundamental point that Paul spends both his epistles to the Corinthians dealing with this one issue. First and Second Corinthians is bringing the Corinthians back to the cross, and specifically to humility. They had become an arrogant people. When they were tolerating the the, the one situation of a man who was in an immoral relationship with a stepmother, and they hadn't confronted the guy, and they hadn't kicked him out of the church, Paul called it arrogance. Arrogance. I believe after... All my years of looking at 1 and 2 Corinthians, I'm more convinced than ever that Paul is simply bringing them back to the cross of Jesus Christ and humility. We celebrated communion this morning. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says, Some of you are weak and sick and some have died because you take the Lord's Supper in a manner that is unworthy of Him. And the specific that he's talking about is not the elements, but the pride. Because in pride, the rich ones in the church were coming with all their food ahead of the meal and eating and getting drunk to the total disregard of the poor. That is rank pride. And he says, and that's what's getting you killed. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is about humility. And you are displaying pride in all of its ugliness in your disregard for the poor people in this church no wonder you're dying the crucified life is a humble life when we live we live the crucified life only by the resurrected life it takes the living Jesus to live a humble life I can't do it in my own strength. It's His life. His life. He lives in us to live His life, and His life is a humble life. His life is the crucified life. So for me to live the crucified life is to have Christ live His life in me. Because His life, every day of His life, not just on the cross, every day of His life, He said, Father, not my will, but Thine be done. That is a crucified life. As saying, not me, God, but you. It wasn't just before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but yours be done. It was every moment of his life was a crucified life. His life is a victorious life. Yes, victorious over sin and death. But it is never a proud life. Victorious over sin and death, but never a proud life. I appreciate what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, speaking of his life being a governing life. The love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls us. We are governed by the love of God. Having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died, And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Doesn't that speak about being governed by the cross? My life is defined by the cross. My life is governed by the cross. I would not be what I am except by the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, you cannot explain my life today except by the cross of Jesus Christ. It's why he was willing to become the dregs of society and the scum of the earth. He describes in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's why he was willing to go poor while others became rich. It's why he was willing to not count life as dear unto itself. It's a humble life. His life reproduced in us the cross for Jesus meant separation and even condemnation. The cross for us means union with him and no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross for Jesus meant being forsaken. The cross for you and I means being loved and never forsaken. For him, the cross meant complete Emptying of self. And for us, it means fullness of life. You cannot understand Jesus apart from the cross. In fact, it has become his identity, it is who he is. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. 9, 12 to 13, and 13 verse 8 all describe Jesus as the Lamb of God slain. He is the Lamb of God slain. The cross has become the identity of Jesus Christ. So how can I identify with Jesus and not identify with the cross? There's no way. If my identity is Jesus, then the cross is also my identity. Not only is the crucified life a humble life, but it is a loving life. Because it's in the cross that God demonstrates his own love for us and that he gave his own son to die for us. And as the cross is dominating my life, controlling my life, not only will I live in humility, but I will live In love. It's not going to be hatred and bitterness. Vengeance that dominates my life. But it will be the love of God. That dominates my life. So what Paul said. Having concluded this. That one died for all. The love of God controls us. Not my love for God. But his love for me. It is a humble life. It is a loving life. And it is also a holy life. The crucified life is a holy life. Jesus could die for our sin precisely because he was holy. He was without sin. And when his life, the crucified life of Christ, is being reproduced in me, sin becomes very, very serious. I want nothing to do with it. God has stirred something up in me. It's his life, his nature within me that I grieve over the things that grieve God. It didn't used to be that way. I want a holy life. And it's not legalism, it's love. I love him because he loved me. And I know what what his, his estimate of sin is the cross. And how can I continue, as Paul says, how can we who died to sin continue in it? But he died that we might be victorious because he's victorious. Over sin and death. We know Jesus said. If anyone wishes to come after me. He must deny himself. And take up his cross. And follow me. Here's a couple questions in conclusion. Didn't think I was going to be taking this long. Sorry. First question. Has the historical reality of the cross. Become my personal reality. My personal identity. The answer to that question depends on whether or not you have received the free gift of eternal life. If you have, then the historical reality is your personal reality. We may not fully understand it. I get it. But God says what happened in history has happened to you. You have been crucified, buried, And raised with Christ because you have received the free gift that's been given to you. Then the second question is Has the historical reality become the governing reality of my life? And I believe Paul would go one more question off of that one Has it become the governing reality of this church? Because in in Corinth, it was not. The cross was a personal reality for everybody in that church. But it was not the governing reality of the church. They were not a humble people. They were an arrogant people. If the resurrection message, and I love preaching that Jesus is alive, but if the resurrection message extinguishes the crucifixion message, if it extinguishes the cross It is not truly the resurrection that we are preaching. Because you can't know the life of Jesus apart from the death of Jesus. And Paul never, this is why the communion, as often as you do this, you proclaim my death. We cannot get away from the death of Jesus. It is on the basis of His death that I am saved. On the basis of His shed blood that I have been made clean. Paul never ceased to preach Christ crucified. He never ceased to preach Christ is alive. It's two sides of the same coin. He's alive. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. He lives in me to live the life that he lived, which was a crucified life. The victory of his life is power over sin and death. It is not a life of perpetual good health, prosperity, problem-free living. These things are nothing in comparison to the real victory and power, and they cheapen the message and purpose of the cross. I'm okay with saying a happy new year. How many times do you hear people also say, and a prosperous new year? That is not the message of the cross. The message of the cross... Is death to self, victory over sin and death, humility, love, holiness. The message of the cross is Jesus who gave himself for us. These things are the message of the cross. I'll close us in prayer. God, thank you for giving your son for each of us. Thank you, God. For this enormous, indescribable, inestimable gift. Beyond all value, truly worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive glory and honor and power. Lord, I pray that in this new year, that we would never depart from Jesus, who was crucified and rose again. That by our lives, we would preach Jesus, not ourselves. That we would live the crucified life of humility and love and holiness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.